to remain standing, uh, please do so. Either way, if you would take a Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It's on page 991. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in that pew in front of you. Take that and turn to page 991 or 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. We're grateful. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true, and it's a living truth. It, it transforms us through faith. So, Father, help us now as we study and look at this word of yours. Give us eyes to see. Give us believing hearts to receive. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In a moment, there's two things I want us to cover from this passage. Something to, to hold on to and something to hand over. And yet... Um, uh, I, I'm going to spend a little bit more time than usual setting up this passage to get us to the point where we could look at what it is we're to hold on to and what it is that we're to hand over. Verse 18 begins uh, with just simply saying, this charge I entrust to you, which ought to beg the question, what charge are we talking about? This charge See, verse 18 begins by, by reaching back to things already mentioned. This charge I entrust to you, for instance, is referenced back to verse 3. Let's set our eyes on verse 3 for a moment here. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, I left you at Ephesus with an assignment that you would charge certain persons to not teach false things. So this charge I entrust to you, verse 18, is the, is the assignment to charge certain people not to teach certain things. That's what Timothy's assignment there at the church at Ephesus in large part consisted of. Also, look at verse 5. Uh, the word charge pops up there again. Speaking of that charge, uh, he said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy, I, 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 I've entrusted this charge to you. It's a charge to 
call out certain people that they would stop their false teaching. And it's a charge whose aim is love. Love is incompatible with falsehood. That If we were to get love right, if we were to know what love consists of, it's got to be predicated and built upon the truth. And so I want you to stop those who teach falsely because, because, well, there's no love found in false teaching. Love only comes from the truth. And so, Timothy, have those who teach falsely stop, for in so doing, you are doing a loving thing. You are promoting love. Timothy, it's this charge. It's this charge that I've... Uh, entrusted to you. So he's, in verse 18, he comes back to the main subject that he began in verse 3, that he elaborated on in verse 5. What has he been doing in the meantime? Well, in verses 6 through 11, he's acknowledged some of the some of the details of what Timothy would be up against, some of the false teaching uh, that was being perpetrated, that Timothy was assigned to to stop. And then in verses 12 through 17, as Carl handled last week, it, it, uh, it acknowledges some of the divine enablement of Christ's mercy to sustain and to strengthen Timothy in his task, his charge to stop those who teach falsely. Now, building upon that, Paul, in saying, Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, he, notice what he says there. This is, uh, even though the, the book is 1 Timothy, there's only a couple of times when he explicitly uses Timothy's name, and this is one of those. This charge I entrust to you, back to verse 18, Timothy, my child, Timothy, my dear, dear child. This is, a, this is not a derogatory term. If I called you childish, child, childish, that would be derogatory. If I called you my child, you should take that as a term of endearment, and that's what it's intended to be here. Um, this, this charge is something that Paul has entrusted to Timothy, and it comes from the affection of Paul toward Timothy. Listen to what Paul would say about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. You get to see why Paul has such precious terms of affection and affirmation, uh, that this is a term of endearment. He, He says this about Timothy in the book of Philippians. For I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare, For they all, meaning everybody else but Timothy, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you see why Timothy is so dear to Paul? There's no one like this young man. He dearly has the interests of Christ above his own interests. He goes on to write, but, but you know Timothy's worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. He's a dear companion in the work of the gospel. And it's with great affection that, that Paul says, I've entrusted this gospel charge to you. But he also frames this charge in another way as well. Not only is this, does this charge come from the affection and affirmation of Paul, it, this charge also comes 
through the authority of the church. Timothy, my dear child, verse 18 again, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, you have this charge entrusted to you, not only by my dear affection and affirmation for you, but you have this charge because, well, because the church has said so. The church laid their hands on you, Timothy, and commissioned you for a task such as this. Listen, listen to how Paul describes this commissioning, this this prophetic word over Timothy in later in the book in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 where Paul would write do not neglect the gift we'll come back to that word in a second do not neglect the gift uh, you have which you have been given by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you Timothy you've been entrusted with this charge to stop those who teach falsely and that is the gift you've been given. Now, when we think of the word gift, we, we, we use it in a 20th century, 21st century kind of way. We think of gift. We say, this is a gifted person. In other words, this person has special abilities. That's not how the word gift was used in this culture. That's how it's used today. So we think of gifted person. We think of someone who has special abilities, which one of these days I hope to obtain that. So, but, but, but in the New Testament, in the language that Paul is writing, the word gift is not so much about a special ability. It's about a special assignment. It's about a task. Lord, that was, that was, this is like, what? A task is a gift? Well, if it's from the Lord, it is. Whatever the Lord tasks you with, should be seen as the Lord's gift to you. It's a special, not ability, but a special assignment. And the church had recognized that God had called Timothy to a task such as this. And the church then came around Timothy, and with the counsel of the elders, they laid hands on Timothy, and they spoke this word of God over Timothy. He says, and by them, so in other words, Timothy, and it's by this authority of the church, this council of the elders, this, this affirmation from Paul, it is by them that you may, and here's where, here's where at the heart of this passage here, that you may wage the good warfare. Or in other words, Timothy, I love you dearly. There's no one like you. And Timothy, the church, has commissioned you to fight a good fight. Now, I know that some of you woke up this morning ready for a good fight. That's not what I'm talking about, though. Uh, when the scriptures describe this kind of good fight uh, that we're to fight, uh, he's not speaking to any of us who walk around with at least this low-grade, constant fever of anger. Ready to grab one of you and work you over. That's not what we're talking about. On the one hand, the scriptures tell us that we're to be peaceful people. As much as it depends upon 
each and every one of us, we are to live at peace with all people. We are not to be the kind of person who walks around with that chip on his shoulder and just says, I dare you. In fact, I double dare you. I'll knock it off myself, and then I'll knock you in the head after, after that. that. That's not what we're talking about. In other words, this passage does not give you and I a reason to live out of our angry hearts. Nevertheless, Timothy was being called and commissioned by the church to fight. I would suggest that to some degree or another, while you and I are to not be known for our hostile, hot-headed angriness, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to contend for the faith once for all delivered. We're to know the truth, and we are to declare the truth, and we are to defend the truth. And it's a good fight. It's a fight worth having because souls are at stake. For only the truth sets people only the truth saves souls. Only the truth sustains lives. Only the truth redeems people from bondage and slavery. But it is a fight. And a fight is never for the squeamish. Fight is never for the faint of heart. A fight is never for the coward. A fight cannot be waged from the sidelines. A fight must be waged by getting into the fray of the battle. Timothy, I love you dearly. I've entrusted this to you as my dear son. The church has authorized you. Go fight this good fight. You see, this charge that he's been given is couched in the image of a good fight. By entering into the lives of these false teachers, he's just being honest. Timothy, when I tell you to stay at Ephesus and to stop those who are teaching different doctrines, I'm asking you to stand your ground and fight. Great risk is, entails a fight. Much duress is involved in a fight. And look at how Timothy has to navigate this. He has to stop the false teachers. And he has to do that with the aim of love. Like I'm thinking I'm just going to have to do one. If you want a good fight, that's fine. I'm not going to love you. Or if I'm going to love you, I'm not going to fight with you. But Timothy has to navigate. In other words, it needs lots of courage to fight this kind of fight. It needs lots of even lots more wisdom to fight this 
kind of fight. So here's my two points then. How? How will Timothy engage in this good fight? And there's two things in the remainder of this passage that is highlighted that really answers some questions pertaining to how. How is this good fight? Two matters pertaining to how this good fight is to be waged well. First, there's something that Timothy must hold on to. If you and I are to be used by the Lord to know the truth and proclaim the truth and defend the truth, then, then also there's something that you and I must be holding on to. It says, after he says there in, that you may wage the good warfare, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. In other words, Timothy, there's something that you have to personally possess. And actually, it's not something, it's some things. It's a, it's, a, it's a pair of essential qualities that if you are going to properly fight the good fight that you've been entrusted to, that the church has authorized you to engage in, then you must hold on to faith and a good conscience. You must possess Pers- persistently possess, ever increasingly possess. You must persevere, Timothy, in faith and a good conscience. You must cultivate faith and a good conscience if you are to properly fight the good fight well. Well, what do each of those qualities represent? What do they mean? We're to hold on to faith. Now, the word faith is used multiple ways, even in the book of 1 Timothy, and and Carl has alluded to that even differentiating it um, slightly even last week, and we we just tag onto that and build onto that some more. Certainly, when when the Bible uses the term faith, it it sometimes refers to um, the body of truth that is to be affirmed. In other words, the, the faith is almost a synonym to the doctrine but I don't think that's what he refers to this. And, and since, and, 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 and it's not that we can pull these apart in a, in a, in a complete way, but, but the emphasis here on holding on to the faith is not so much the body of truth affirmed as much as it's the act of believing in that truth. Timothy, if you are going to fight the good fight, you must, first of all, persevere in trusting in Christ. You must persevere in trusting Christ. In other words, you must have genuine faith in Christ. Second, not only must Timothy hold on to trusting in Christ, the faith, but he also must hold hold on to a good conscience. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we touched on this. In fact, Look up there at verse 5 again. The, uh, a sincere faith and a good conscience were two of the three things mentioned uh, as, as factors that build into what true love consists of. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith.
Our faith in Christ must be genuine, it must be sincere, and our conscience must be good. What I mean by good conscience is, is as we alluded to a few weeks ago, it, first of all, it's a conscience uh, that is well calibrated. Our conscience is our conscious awareness of right and wrong. And our conscious awareness of right and wrong must be calibrated by the words of God. We all have a conscience. Not all of our consciences uh, coincide exactly with what the Scripture itself teaches. And so our, 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 our aim in life is to take our conscious awareness of right and wrong and calibrate that, line that up with what the Scripture itself says is right and wrong. And, and when what our conscience says is right and wrong lines up with what the Scripture says is right and wrong, then we have a well-calibrated conscience. But a, a good conscience is not just simply a well-calibrated conscience. A good conscience is one that operates accordingly. It, it functions well. It, it takes what it knows to be right and wrong, and it does that. that. That we actually choose to do right, and we actually refrain from doing wrong. When you and I choose to do what's right and refrain from doing wrong, then uh, our conscience is good. It's working well. It's working as God intended it to. Or in other words, we could, we could just in a sense say a good conscience is a life that strives to be obedient to God's word. It wants to believe everything God's word says. It wants to embrace and obey everything God's word says. So, so how, how, do we, how does Timothy fight well? How do you and I fight well, the, the good fight? How do we do that? We appropriate um, uh, the, uh, the, these qualities we possess and we, we uh, cultivate and we display and uh, we are driven by Trust in Jesus and living uprightly or living obediently. And this is not a multiple choice uh, affirmation here. This is not as though we say, okay, now, I, I can't do both of them. And so, Jesus, which one do you want me to do? Do you want me to trust in you or do you want me to live uprightly? So, I, no, these are, I would suggest to you, these are inseparable. There is an inseparable connection. I don't think our culture, I don't think our Christian subculture understands this. There is a connection between claiming to trust in Jesus and living obediently to God's word. Right, at least I got one guy who agrees with me here. The rest of us are like, eh, not so fast. I love Jesus, I just don't want to do what he says. All right, well, you see the problem then. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just picking on you. You can, you can fight me later if you want to. But. In other words, our faith in Jesus is to lead to living rightly. It's like, a, I don't have to worry about how I live, I trust in Jesus. No, you trust in Jesus, you worry about how you live. 
Because trusting in Jesus entails a heart posture that says, I want to, I want to please my master. So holding on to faith and a good conscience does not mean I'll just pick one or the other. No, I'll, I'll grab a hold of both the best I can by the grace of God. I want to earnestly trust in Jesus and I want to sincerely live out my faith in obedience to God's word. Our, our faith in Jesus should lead us to living rightly, to want even to live rightly. And yet I think we could flip the, the, uh, the, 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 the relationship there in, in, say, in how we strive to live rightly will help us further develop our trust in Christ. In other words, that there's a certain danger if you say you trust in Jesus. That's that's great. I'll take you. For, I'll take your word for it. But do you want to grow and to cultivate a deeper trust in Jesus? Then it matters the choices that you make. It matters that you have an understanding of what is right and wrong. It matters how you order your life because you can order your life in disregard for the truth of God's word and that will undercut, that will sucker punch whatever sort of trust you say you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, give you illustrate that. Say we, we, we raise up a child in this church. They, they go to Bible study. They go and they are in the youth group. They, they, they sit and preach in and, and they hear all of these things. And, and, uh, and uh, they tacitly say they trust in these things. But it doesn't really make a profound influence on their life. But, you know, sign me up. I'll take one. So then they go off to college. We send them to uh, where it could be a secular university. It could be an allegedly Christian university. And there they hear things that undercut their faith. And so they begin to be shaky, but not only do they hear things to undercut their faith, but they're given opportunity to live a certain immoral kind of life. And I guarantee you that even though a kid may have grown up in this church, they go away from the home and they begin to live a certain kind of immoral life. That will shake whatever vestige or remnant they have of faith in Christ. And they will come home and they say, I don't know if I believe that stuff anymore. Well, you know why you don't believe in that stuff no more? It's because you're sleeping with your boyfriend. You're fornicating. And fornicating will chip away at whatever alleged faith in Jesus you say you have. We're to hold on to trusting in Jesus and living rightly. So how do we cultivate these things? How do we cultivate the faith? How do we cultivate a good conscience? Well, first of all, we do these things from our hearts. We do these things out of the affections of our hearts. And we do these things through the gracious means that God has provided. Things like spiritual routines and spiritual disciplines and spiritual habits and spiritual patterns. Later in the book, 1 Timothy 4, 7, uh, Timothy will, uh, will be told by Paul, train yourselves for the purposes of godliness. Or he'll say a couple verses later in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, 
keep a close watch over your life and over your doctrine. And in some cases, people's life goes sideways because their doctrine has gone sideways. In other cases, people's doctrine begins to go sideways because their life has gone sideways. So, Timothy, stay in the fight. Stay in the fight by holding on. Now, I get it. God holds on to us. But this is not an either-or proposition. It's like, well, if God's going to hold on to me, I don't have to really pay much attention. I can just... No, that's not how the Scripture frames it. It is true that Jesus gets every one of his children safely home. He holds us in his hands, and he is in the Father's hands, and that takes a long way. Uh, and, and, and yet, while there are scriptures that, are, that truly show us that God holds on to us, we are not given those scriptures so that we can ignore the scriptures that charge us to hold on. They're both true. So, Timothy, hold on. Hold on to trusting in Jesus and hold on to living uprightly, living obediently. The second thing he wants to say, though, uh, as, as he finishes verse 19 and bumps into verse 20, is speaking about, Timothy, you hold on to faith and a good conscience. Then he says, by rejecting this, rejecting what? Some people don't pay no mind to what Paul just told Timothy. You know, like, I don't know what's up with him. Uh, you know, hold on to faith and good conscience, whatever. You know, some have rejected this. Look at, the, and look at how that's working for them. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are, this is like, wow, this is a, must be a Baptist church. He names name. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a heavy passage, isn't it? So, Timothy, you've got to hold on to some things, and Timothy, we've got to hand over some things. Fighting the good fight means you know when to hold on and you know when to hand over. Almost sounds like a country western song, but... Uh, uh, don't be singing the song now. I heard someone humming that. <laughs> We're going to be fighting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some won't hold on to the faith in a good conscience. Some will say, well, whatever. They won't continue to persevere in trusting Jesus and living uprightly. They... They reject this. Some, some have not persevered in these things because they've pushed themselves away from these things. I don't need to worry myself with that. <clears throat> some have not held on to faith and a good conscience. Some have shoved them away from their lives. Some have not trained themselves for the purposes of godliness. Some have not been watching carefully their life and their doctrine, the way they live and what they believe. And some, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
have just simply renounced the whole thing. They have apostatized. Now, let me see if I can explain this in a way that I can even make sense of it my own self. Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are explicitly mentioned here, so we can talk bad about them for just a minute. They didn't drift into their renouncing of the faith, which I think that's what he really is meaning here when he says that they have made shipwreck of their faith. In other words, they, they have quit believing in Jesus and the things that they now believe are contrary to the truth as it is in Jesus. They have renounced Jesus. Um, a word that's used uh, to describe this in our own day and age within Christianity is deconstruction. They have deconstructed. And, and, the, and on the one hand, deconstruction is, this does not does not occur simply because you just kind of stumble and drift your way into this. And yet, and yet having said that, this is what I want to say, you drift up to that point. Hymenaeus and Alexander are not drifting at this moment. They have decisively turned away. They have decisively renounced Jesus. They have refused to trust in Jesus, and they have rejected this notion of living rightly, uprightly. How does someone get there, though? How does someone get to that point of decisiveness where uh, last year or two years ago or ten years ago, they said they loved Jesus upside down and right side left and any way possible? And now a year later or two years later or 10 years later, they have waved these things off and want nothing to do with that. And they are pretty determined about that. Don't want anything to do with this stuff. That's a decisive moment in someone's life. And Hymenaeus and Alexander are at that decisive moment in their life. That's why we'll see in a minute Paul calls for such extreme measures of handing them over. This is... This is, this is a decisive renunciation. This is a clear apostasy of turning away from the truth and from the Lord Jesus Christ. But before you come out as one who has deconstructed, I would suggest to you that that's been years or weeks or months, a long time in the making. And that long time in the making is what is the drift. If you and I are not on this day, this week, this season of our lives, if we are not actively holding on, if we are not intentionally cultivating, trusting in Jesus and living uprightly, if we're not purposing to do that right here, right now, then you're drifting. 
And I don't know how long it's going to take before that drift becomes a decisive renunciation. Some of us are faster than others. Some of us can drift for a couple of weeks or a few months or a year, and others that drift may take decades. But drift you will if you don't cultivate if you don't hold on, if you don't actively, intentionally persevere in holding on to trusting Jesus and living uprightly, then the alternative to not, to, to, to not hold on is to get yourself to the place where you just flat out reject this whole thing. They say, well, I... I, I grew up in a Christian school, or I went to a Christian church, or, or my mom and dad have been Christians ever since uh, their grandpappies have been Christians. And so uh, I'm just going to sail my way. Th- You're drifting, drifting, drifting. I'm glad you went to a Christian school, I think. I'm glad you went to a Christian church. I'm glad your parents are Christian. But we're not talking about any of that right now. We're talking about right here, right now, on this day. Are you cultivating trusting in Jesus? Are you cultivating living uprightly? Because if you're not cultivating, you're drifting. And drifting is going to take you to a point where you deconstruct. Where you finally empty your soul. And uh, these two guys have apparently got themselves here. Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus is mentioned elsewhere. He's mentioned in Second um, Timothy, uh, chapter two, verses seventeen to eighteen. Alexander is mentioned elsewhere. Probably the same Alexander, at least. Uh, he's mentioned in uh, in Timothy four fourteen, Second Timothy four fourteen, I believe. He's also mentioned in Acts nineteen. And these guys are, are not just simply in drift stage. They are in decisive renunciation stage. And Paul says to Timothy, and I think by implication, what Paul tells Timothy he did is what Timothy should do as well. Hand them over. That's, that's, that should be like, you know, that is serious stuff. It's, but it's serious because the infraction is serious. And yet what I would suggest to you is that their renunciation resulted in them being blasphemers, blasphemers, in other words, speaking ill of the things of God. And even that, he hands them over to Satan, not for punitive reasons, but for corrective reasons. Why did he hand them over? That they may learn not to blaspheme. In other words, my uh, hope and, and, and aspiration is that by handing them over to Satan, Satan would do a, a judicial disciplining work in their lives because God would, 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 would in, 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 uh, direct Satan to, to, to do that um, for the purpose of restoration, not vengeance. That, that they would learn not to blaspheme God. Now, let me say one quick thing then um, 
about this handing over. There's another passage in the New Testament written by Paul himself that uses that same language. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul instructs the church at Corinth because they had a horrendous uh, sin unfolding in their church. And he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present uh, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The same kind of imagery going on here from Paul himself. In other words, there is a category, and I would just add, um, this is not one's first option. This is not the first thing we think of when, uh, when we see people going in the bad direction or wrong direction. We don't say, that's it, that's it, I'm handing you over. And In fact, I would suggest to you, this is not really the language that we ourselves would personally use. This is the language that the gathered church would use. It's not the first option, it's the last resort. When pleading has been exhausted, when patience has been depleted, when prayer runs its course, when we as humans have done all we can to reclaim someone, then it's time to acknowledge that something else must be done that we can't do. We must, as a gathered church, hand that person over to Satan. Extreme measures, harsh measures. But the the intent is a merciful intent in order to awaken an erring saint's awareness of the destruction of their lives and the sinfulness of their lives. Why? with the hopes and prayers and desires that such handing them over drives them back, drives them back to the Lord, drives them back to gathering with the Lord's people. Because the Lord can do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll close with this, it says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but be patient with all people. Uh, able to teach, that, that, that we might say some things that God would be pleased to use and uh, that would lead this person to repentance through a knowledge of the truth, having escaped the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Saying that someone is handed over to Satan should be a really scary thing. In fact, you may be here this morning and you're like, wow, I wonder if someone's handing me over to Satan. I don't know if they have or not, but I do know this. There is a clear pathway of, of escape from the snare of the devil, and that is to run to Jesus right now. Turn to Jesus. Turn again to Jesus. Turn again and again to Jesus right now. His blood is the only payment for our sin. And his offer is on the table. Turn to Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will unshackle you from the snares of the devil.
Father, thank you for your word. I pray that this word uh, would be helpful to your people, that it would help us to know what to hold on to and how to hand over. For Father, you have, in a way similar to Timothy, you have called each and every one of your children to fight the good fight, to honor you by knowing and declaring and defending the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may the very truth that we declare to others be the truth that we've cultivated in our own hearts and lives. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.